In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, God sent Moses back to Egypt to demand freedom for the people. Moses presented the Lord's command for one thing, not just to let my people go, as if you were preaching a doctrine of merely social liberation, but to let my people go to worship me. Pharaoh doesn't exactly refuse Moses outright. Rather, he tries to negotiate with the demands of Moses, and first to request that only the men be permitted to go. Moses answered, With our young and our old we must go, with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and herds we must go. It is a pilgrimage feast of the Lord for us. Moses sees that it is necessary for the entire people, and even all of their belongings, to be disposable before God's will. So as Pharaoh continues to negotiate, Moses has to deny him every time. It isn't just a matter of taking the men who will make the sacrifice into the wilderness, or just the livestock necessary to be sacrificed. The Lord demands a total openness, a total openness on which we cannot put any prior limit. And this is necessary because the purpose of the people of Israel was to be set apart and holy for the true worship of God. Because ultimately, it is not about offering God some merely external formality, as Pharaoh seemed to think, but the people's interior worship. As a matter of fact, to know God, to love God above all things, and to praise him is the highest function a man can engage in. In the Garden of Eden, before man's untimely fall, it was already man's duty to love him, to worship him, and to praise him. Even after the fall, that same obligation still persists. And this is why God chose one people and set them apart from all the other nations, that they might lead all of mankind back to the worship of God. The first reading attributes the devastation of the land to the people's failure in their primary task, to be a people set apart and holy to worship the Lord. Since the people won't worship God as they ought, but instead profane the Holy Sabbath, God allows their enemies to conquer them so overwhelmingly that they become literally unable to break the Sabbath any further. This is an ironic fulfillment of the commandments, because the Sabbath is not something kept outwardly by idleness, but in the first place, inwardly, through the devout worship of God. Remember that Jesus said that the Sabbath was created for man and not man for the Sabbath. Instead of regarding the keeping of God's commandments as the basis of happiness and the entryway into the fullness of life, they regarded it as a burden which oppressed them and needed to be thrown off. Of old, they were liberated from cruel slavery under Pharaoh in order to be free to worship God in the land, but then came to regard this same worship as slavery. In the light of salvation history, 
we understand that God's deepest desire is not the imposition of a difficult and burdensome external task, but that hearts freely love him and give him praise. That is why he invited the Israelites to return to the land, to rebuild their temple, so they could finally offer him worship from their hearts. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. The lie, told first by the serpent and perpetuated on account of sin through the ages, is that God's commandments are death to us. But Jesus reveals that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. That is not merely life of a quantitatively lengthened dimension, say, of a normal human life prolonged interminably, but life of a qualitatively higher sort. Eternal life is divine life. And it is through divine life that we have the power to love God above all things and to keep the commandments. This is why there's no dichotomy between abiding in God's law and self-fulfillment. Grace, and grace alone, makes this possible. Both now and, what's more, for all eternity, friendship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, simply is and will be all our joy, our happiness, and our bliss. Unfortunately for us, a lot like the Israelites, God's law doesn't always seem like a path of happiness and freedom for us. And if it were merely an external standard, which we were expected to live up to on our own power and strength, it would not be good news. But Jesus speaks of another source of power and strength for us. Jesus says, So must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. This refers to his passion, the entire series of events of his suffering leading up to his death on the cross. Jesus is telling us that his passion has intrinsic power to communicate life to us through faith. Consider the manner of his life and how the passion contains the sufficient medicine for all of our sins. Having first preached the gospel of God's love, Christ gave himself over to death for our sake. He underwent humiliations and shame, was stripped naked, and nailed to the cross to conquer our pride. He bore these offenses with the gentleness of a lamb led to slaughter to atone for our anger. He bore the cruel stripes of the scourging to heal our sins of sensuality and lust. He bore all of this in obedience to the Father to heal our disobedience. And as the antidote to all of our hatreds, 
He bore it with the love of charity for God above all things. What excess of love to pour out his entire life when only a drop of his blood would have sufficed. We might ask ourselves, how can I share in the benefit that the passion of Christ brings? During Christ's earthly ministry, crowds flocked about him, hoping only to touch the tassel of his cloak and so be healed. But the passion of Christ is distant, not only by land and sea, but by some 2,000 years. How can someone reach out and touch a past event? Jesus offers us the solution in the image of the bronze serpent. Just as the Israelites received back full health while gazing on the bronze serpent in the desert, so too we make spiritual contact with the passion of Christ when we gaze on the cross in faith. Through the power of faith and the sacraments, we come into such a real spiritual contact with the cross that it is as if we are standing beneath the cross itself with the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. John the Beloved. One privileged way for the baptized to come into contact with the power of the passion of Christ is through the sacrament of penance. The specific effect of the sacrament of penance is the forgiveness of post-baptismal sins. By freeing us from our sins, it lets us live the life of God and the love of God with greater freedom. The Church asks us to partake of this sacrament once a year. If you haven't yet availed yourself of this sacrament, consider that now is the acceptable time. Another is the Eucharist. St. Thomas Aquinas called the Eucharist an extension of the Incarnation, since the Eucharist extends and prolongs the bodily presence of Christ among us. In this sacrament, which we are about to receive, we come into contact with that same true body, which was given up for our sake, suffered, died, and raised gloriously. Even now, Christ stands in heaven at the right hand of the Father with those five glorious tokens of his passion on his hands, feet, and side uttering, without words, the most eloquent prayer on our behalf, that what he won by sovereign right through his passion on the cross might be ours through his high priestly intercession. <laughs>